blunt your instrument, right? <laughs> so we're to talk about J uh, Joseph. We all begin well, don't we? We all start off like, and then, but what we, 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 what we need to understand, say this with me, the battle, the battle. is not to the strong. The race is not to the swift, but time and chance happen to us all. That's what the Bible says. In other words, what it, what the one that endures is the one that gets the prize. The one that stays in the game and continues to wait and take advantage of the opportunities is the one that wins. The best-looking one doesn't always win the prize, people. The game is long. We were just talking in, over here, and, and a young gal that comes here, and she was asking me about it just stuff. Instagram's a liar. I don't know if you know that. YouTube's a liar. They tell you you can have it all in 10. If you don't have it in two years, there's something wrong with you. Well, who told you that? The game's long. God had a purpose in Joseph's life. And that purpose wasn't fully realized until he was in his 40s. He thought he was going to get it in his 20s. Didn't happen. But did it mean that God didn't have a purpose for him? The culture says that if you don't have it in five years, then there's something wrong with you. Who told you that? Jesus never told you that. God plays long in our life. David was 16 when he was anointed as king. He didn't get it until he was, he was always like 30 years old. It took him like 12 or 13 years to act. Can you imagine that? I have a call of God in my life. Yeah, for the next 12 years or the next 15 years, you're, you're spending nothing but running from people. You don't look like anything but a king. There's nothing, that, there's nothing in your life that embodies what God told you. Nothing. I'm going to be a king. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, uh-huh, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's you. Joseph was born into a family. He was the great, he's the son of Jacob. We talked about Jacob last week. So this is one of Jacob's sons. He was born into, uh, he was the favorite of his father. He was the grandson of Abraham. He was born into a, a blended family. Jacob has, say with me, 12 sons. Is it off? Yeah. I need batteries. I'm going to need batteries. It's blinking. That's why. I just changed these last week. Just preached the power right out of this battery pack. When you have the ball and you got the shot, take it. <laughs> so he's got 12 sons, one daughter from four different baby mamas. Jacob was a player. That's what he was. Which tells you one thing. There's a high probability of dysfunction. High probability. Dude, you got four women and you got 12 kids and a daughter, 12 boys and a daughter with four different women. You got problems, man. I don't care what, God, what God's power is doing for you. You're going to have nothing but problems. And so there's a high probability of dysfunction. Joseph was the favorite of them all. You heard me tell you this story before. Joseph's one of my favorite characters. He's a painful one because I see the things, same things in his life that I've seen in my own. And some of you will identify with some of this stuff in your life. All the other brothers had to work, but Joseph didn't have to work. You got a coat of many colors. You got a Versace robe. Oons, 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 oons. They were working on the field. He was working on his tan, right? Come home, he'd have his Ray-Bans on or his Carreras. Hey, what's up, guys? What's going on out there in the field? Yeah, I was working today, too. Kind of trying to get this side of my body tan. I just, you know, noticed that I just, I'm tan here, but I'm kind of, you know, so I was laying on my side all day. I don't, do I look burned to you? Do I look burned? <laughs> and his brothers couldn't stand him. They had to do all the hard labor, and this guy's like, he's just sitting around the pool drinking Mai Tais all day. That's like, kind of like what he's doing. He was favorite of his father, and his story begins with a dream. Isn't that amazing? His story begins with a dream. Joseph had a dream. Here's the problem. He told it to his brothers, and they hated him. Hello, haters all the way. You're born with a purpose. You're born with an identity. You're born with a calling. If you're hungry to know what your purpose is, God will make it available to you. Absolutely. 
question is, is do you want to know? People go, what's the will of God for my life? God's going to show you. But my question always is this, is when the Lord shows you his will, are you going to decide to do it, or are you going to just decide whether or not you agree with it? A lot of times God makes his, makes his calling known, and he makes his purposes known in our lives, and we want to know it, not so that we can go, hey, let me follow Jesus, but let me just see if his plan is as good as the one that I have. That's what most people do. And so God gave Joseph a dream. He gave him a vision. He showed him his future. He said, you're going to be a leader. Your brother's going to bow down to you. Your mother and father are going to bow down to you. And he goes, I know. I am awesome. His failure was he never asked why, and he never asked how. Same thing. Our, our mission, our life in Christ begins with a dream and begins with a vision. Acts chapter 2, you will dream dreams and you will, dream, and you will see visions. We're to be dreamers and visionaries. God is to give you visions. Visions of your life, visions of your future, visions of your purpose. He gives you dreams. We're supposed to be dreamers. The most intellectual and creative people and spiritually dynamic people on the planet are supposed to be found within the church. Sadly, that's not the case. A bunch of religious statues, a bunch of arrogant answer givers, lifeless, lifeless, you know? Jesus gives us Rocky Road ice cream, and it looks like we've been eating Sour Patch Kids all day. We're like, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> We're visionaries. We're dreamers. He has a purpose for you. He has a calling for you. But not everybody needs to be told your dream and your vision. Yes. I have a new rule. I got a new rule. When Moist claps... All y'all can clap. So I got a new rule. That's a good, that's a good cue. So when Moist clapping and he's on point, you all can clap along with him. <laughs> I was listening to the CD and Moist like, yeah, yeah. No, nobody else is clapping. I'm like, man, you don't need to clap, man. Dreams and visions are not to be shared with every person because people will despise you for the dream and vision you have, and they despise you for a lot of reasons, out of jealousy, they did just a bunch of stuff. The Bible says when God gave Mary the vision, what does it say? Anybody know what she did? She held these things within her heart. She didn't run around going, I'm going to be the mother of the Messiah. The Holy Spirit has conceived this baby in me. The only one she told was her, was her cousin Elizabeth. That's the only one she told. And Elizabeth was like, yes. Because her, her, her cousin understood and valued spiritual things. Not everybody values spiritual things, Christian. Just so you know, the Lord spoke to me. Oh, I don't know about that. God gave me a vision. This is what he, what he showed me. This is the things that God showed me. Not everybody's going to agree with that. Not everybody's going to understand it. Sometimes God puts a thing on you that's very lofty and very high. If the vision that God gives you isn't out of reach for you, it's not a vision from God. If you don't feel that you have the ability to meet what God has showed you, he always calls you beyond yourself. The key when God gives you a vision and gives you a dream is to ask, why and how are these things going to happen? Had Joseph asked why, why are my brothers going to bow down to me? Because the Lord would, would have told him, because I'm going to use you to preserve your family. And if he would have told you, if he would have said how, the Lord would have said, I'm going to work it out in time, but I'm going to use you and I'm going to put you in a prominent position so that you can preserve your family and you're going to be lifted above your brothers for this reason. Joseph wasn't lifted above his brothers because he was so good looking and he wasn't so amazing and he wasn't so favored. The Bible indicates that he was pretty good looking. He had sexy cougars chasing after him, you know, he was well oiled and tanned, you know. He didn't seem to have a problem getting the ladies. And everywhere he went, <laughs> everywhere he went, he found favor. He was just naturally charismatic. People naturally favored him. It just happened. He was the one that was highlighted all the time. His problem was is he trusted a lot in his charisma. And he, and he believed that the favor on his life was a result of him. And God had to use the circumstances to change him and to shift the way that Joseph saw and to shift the way that Joseph understood things. That's what he's doing in your life. He's shifting the way you see things. He's shifting your understanding of things. You should believe God for a vision. And if we line people up to tell them what the vision's worth, people go, I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say what God told me. No, say it. Tell me. I do it all the time. Well, I don't know. It just, it just sounds so crazy. No, I want to hear it. 
because I know it's, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going I'm to hear the vision, I'm going to look at you, and I'm going to go, <laughs> no way, because I know it's not possible with you. And if you think it's possible with you, you don't know the vision, the vision's going to be beyond you. There's no, there's no reason or any ability that Joseph possessed to make him in the, in, the, in the place that God had showed him he was going to be. But he believed it. He just didn't go about it the right way. He assumed it. Joseph was given a lot. He was given a charisma. He was given favor. He was given position. He was given a vision. He was given a dream. He was given a prophetic calling. In Luke chapter 12, the Bible says, For to whom, say this with me, To whom much is given, of them much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of them much war will be asked. People go, well, I'm exempt from that. I don't have anything. Let me explain something to you. You have everything. You have everything. You are the sons and daughters of the highest. To you has been committed the kingdom. You believe you have no obligation? Who told you that? It's not an issue of material wealth. It's not even an issue of, of, of intellect. It's an issue of spiritual identity and spiritual inheritance. God has entrusted you, and you have an obligation and a responsibility into that identity, and you have a responsibility and an obligation into that inheritance. And for that, we, all of us will be accounted for. All of us. We will account for our identity. We will account for our spiritual inheritance. You say, I didn't have anything. God's like, I gave everybody something. All y'all have something. We all have something. Some have four, some have three, some have one. It's irrelevant. If you're faithful with the one, you come back to Jesus and go, look what I did. He's going to go give that guy five. So the next time it ha he's going to continually increase you and, and fan you out. The guy that had five, five talents and multiplied, multiplied it, he got what he multiplied. God increased him from a five to a ten. And not only that, he gave the one who was the most successful, or the most faithful, or the most courageous with what he had given, he gave him what the others neglected. The guy with the one neglected it. He buried it. He did nothing with it. The parable of the talents. You can read it. He buried it. He said, well, I knew you were going to hold me accountable, so I didn't want to come before you with nothing. And he said, well, if you knew I was going to hold you accountable, then you would know I was expecting a return. And I most definitely wasn't expecting you to do nothing. If you expect Jesus thinks you to do nothing with your inheritance and with the calling of God on your life, you don't know him at all. You don't know him at all. There will be a lot of Christians that are going to stand before him and they're going to have him tell them that. But you're not going to have this pastor say, you never told me. You're not going to look at me and tell me that because I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you. <laughs> you're chosen, Christian. You're chosen. You're called of God. Ready? I want to get this mentality into you. Say this. Say it with me. I can waste it. I can completely fail, and I can go back to the Lord, and he'll give it to me again. 100%. We're like, well, I don't want to fail. We're so afraid of failure. Jesus isn't afraid of failure. He does not condemn failure, Christian. He condemns cowardice. We got to get it right. The world condemns failure. Jesus doesn't condemn failure. Have you seen the disciples? Okay. Can we get a witness? Yeah. Peter failed, and he's the, he's the poster child of spiritual failure. Epic fail. Calling, Jesus makes declarations, you're the rock, Peter. You're the man. This, that, all the other things, and he epically failed. And what happened? Did Jesus give it back to him? Yeah. Every single time. That man with the parable of the talents could have went out there and did the best he could and screwed it up, and he could have went back to the Lord and goes, you know, you remember that talent you gave me? <laughs> well, you see, you know... <laughs> I got some good news and I got some bad news. Good news is I tried to do something with it. The bad news is it just didn't work out. And he would have been all right. I commend your courage. Little faith. Here, go again. Go again. That's who he is. We preach a different Jesus, man. We make a God in our image. God will not conform to your image, but he will let you conform into his. He will not become as you want him to be, but he will allow you to become as he is. We, we preach a Jesus that's the way we want him. Dude, you can't contain him. He's wild and free. He bears no man's chains, and he bears no man's image. None. We bear his image. He will not bear ours. So we preach this Jesus like, well, like as if Jesus is this icon of, of what we think he is. 
Just read a quote. This guy's like, I can't understand Christianity. It doesn't align with human morality. Duh! That's your premise. Your, 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 your premise is completely wrong. He's not in here. He's, he's calling us unto himself. He's calling us into his lifestyle. He's calling us into his mentality. He's calling us into his heart and his understanding. He's not trying to adapt himself to ours. That's why it doesn't work. It doesn't work until you, you transform and renew into his mind and his heart. It doesn't work. You have to see him as he says. You have to know my father's good. My king is good. And he expects courage of me and doesn't have a problem with my incompetence. And he doesn't have a problem with my failure. So long as I learn from my failure and so long as I work on my incompetence. That's who he is. And guess what? We're all incompetent. We all are. So stop playing like you aren't because you are. We're not incompetent. Sunday morning, I, man, I've been a part of this for too long. I can't, I can't do church culture anymore. I see it immediately. I smell it. Well, pastor, you see, <laughs> you see. Everybody's perfect on Sunday mornings. Like, dude, take the mask off, brother. Who are you trying to fool? You know? Yeah. <laughs> I saw you arguing with your wife when you pulled in the driveway. <laughs> I'm the pastor. I can't let anybody know that. I know. Yeah, you can. You can tell them. My wife and I don't get along. I've been married 30 years. Sarah and I go at each other like polecats, man. We like, Rah! and then we calm down and start licking our wounds. And she comes over and starts licking my wounds, and I start licking her wounds. There you go. You have it. You get it. You okay? Everybody feel better. You feel better. Good. I felt many times. Many times. We're so afraid of R and D. Somebody put it like this, we're afraid of producing Judases. We're so restrained, we don't want to produce a Judas. We don't want to produce a Judas. Judas was one out of 12 people. I'm more interested in producing the other 11 than I am in producing the, producing the Judas. You know, we don't, well, we don't want to, we don't want to, well, we don't want, you know. It's like, it's a bunch of nonsense, man. Joseph knew he was chosen, but he thought he could do it because he was special. He didn't understand it was because he had a purpose. God gives you a purpose, say it with me, my purpose. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's not. Your purpose is because God wants to do something glorious through your life. And that glory is always reflected to others. It's never about you. Ever. Whatever that may be. God has a calling and a purpose over your life. What is that? Because he wants to be reflected. He wants himself reflected through that purpose. And he wants himself reflected through that purpose to other people. To other people. That's what he wants. So regardless of what you're doing, God's going to give me a million-dollar business. Is he? I'm all for it. I'm in. I have a bunch of questions for you in relationship to that. But what are you going to do? Where are you going to get there? Why do you think he's going to give you that? Why? Because he loves me. I'm so special. I'm so dynamic. I have all the right connections, so I know what's going to happen. Yeah. But what's the end game here? Is the, what's the end game here? So you can drive a Bugatti? Is that, is that the end game? You know? So you can wear Armani, you can bling and make everybody think how special you are? Or is the end game to reflect Christ unto the world and to fund the gospel into the furthest reaches that it has? It's not about you. Nothing did God's going to make me famous. Why? Why? Give him a reason to give you that. What reason does he have to give you that? When you ask, that's why the Bible tells us in James, you ask amiss because you ask for yourself alone. You're asking and you're not getting because you're asking for the wrong reason. You think it's about you. And you go, Lord, if you put me in that position, I'll be an influence for you. He goes, you know what? I'll take you at your word, but start influencing me right where you are. No, I can't do that, Lord. Oh, I can't influence you over here. No, no, no. But if you give me that position, well, then I'll influence you. You'll never get it because you can't be faithful with the little. What you want, you have to be faithful in the little. If you are not faithful in the little, you will never be entrusted with much. If you're not faithful with a $100,000 business, you're not going to be faithful with a million-dollar business. You won't. You just won't. Whatever God is telling you to do, it doesn't matter what he's telling you to do. I'm doing this thing with India. I wanted to put a picture of the pastors up on the screen, but I, I couldn't get to it fast enough. But Alex sent me a bunch of pictures. We got like 24 guys in this program. I told Alex from the get-go, we want. I only wanted five. I could get, just get 10 or 12, 
and we'll try to get five to make it through. We're just starting it, so we're in the raw stages. But my point to them is like, why do you want to do this? That's the first thing out of the gate. Why do you want to be a pastor? What, what's, to what end? If you don't know what the motivation is, then you need to go find the motivation before you actually even say you want this. Do you want it because you want to be popular? Do you want it because you want to be looked at as a politician in your country like you're some person of prestige? Is that what you want? Is that why you want this? And they were pushing back on me on servitude. We're, you know, there's, there's about six of us here, and we're, we're all pastors, and we're men of God, and bless God, we've been pastors for 20 years. We want the training, but how dare you tell us to serve? <laughs> how dare you? That's what, that was their attitude. We're not going to serve that orphanage. How can you tell us to serve the orphanage? I go, if you can't serve that orphanage, you can't serve those people. If you can't serve those people, you can't serve Jesus, so you may as well go find something else to do. He's telling me all this stuff, and he's like, you know, they're pushing back on that. I go, I want you to tell me. If you guys know Alex, Alex is really nice, and he's kind of tiptoe. He's like, well, you know, pastor, oh, everything's good, everything's good. And I know not everything's good, because I know what I told them. I know what I said, and I know it's not. I did it intentionally. I wanted to throw it right at them intentionally. And I wanted to see who stands when the storm blows over them. Who's going to stand? I'm pushing right up against their pride. I'm pushing right up against the things that I know that they're going to push on me for. And so they pushed on me, and, they're not, and he's like, well, you know, we got about six or seven guys. And, you know, they just feel that they've been in ministry for so long, and, and they don't understand, um, you know, why uh, you're asking them to serve. Because I told him to come up with a schedule for the orphanages and all the things that need to be done in his father's orphanages. And I said, your dad's not doing them. They're doing it. You want this? Your old man, his dad's been doing it faithfully, and his dad's been carrying the water for those orphanages for decades. And I told him, these men that want ministry training, you want ministry training? There's ground zero. And so I said, you want to do it? And I said, and I told him to come up with a schedule and everything, and then he did. And then he's saying, well, you know, we're putting it together, but my, my dad and my uncle are trying to tell me, well, we're going to lose people. I go, let them go. Let them all go. Let every one of them go. Let them be shaken out until we have a core and a foundation of guys that actually want to do this. And from that, we can propagate. We can cause those five to bloom. And once we get those five to bloom, we can propagate from that seed. But we can't, I don't, I'm not building this on, on selfishness, on, on ego. And people get so enthralled with the numbers. Well, we got, oh, his dad told me he could get 100 pastors for me. I told this to another pastor. He's like, you should take that. You could be a bishop of India, Kevin. <laughs> she was with, so he told me. And I'm thinking, you know, my pride's like going, yes, I could be the bishop of India. And I'm like, it's meaningless. The bishop of 100 pastors that, do, that know nothing. The bishop of 100 pastors that produce nothing. But that's how the church operates. They operate from this context of vanity and not executing the, the vision of God. Is this, I'm like, is this what you want, Lord? And I was like, you think that's what I want? You know, it's like, I'm like, it's not about me. It's nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with you. And you got to get that right. God is going to put something great on you. Say, I, I feel like my calling is to raise godly children. To what end? Why? Why? I, I agree with you. I'm not, I don't, I, listen, I don't know. If you tell me the vision of God for your life, I don't oppose it at all. I'm, all. I'm for it. I'm all in. I'm the cheerleader. I'm like, yes, let's go for that. But why do you want that? Why do you want that? Why? Because I want my children to influence the next generation. Ah, ah, now we have something. So now you need to begin to train your children, teach your children, talk to your children, lead your children, influence your children in the importance of being an influence in their generation. And how do I do that? Ask the Holy Spirit. The neglected weight and the neglected treasure of the Christian is the Spirit of God. Spirit of God. Estella, we met this week, right? You didn't think you could hear the Holy Spirit very clearly, did you? Were you hearing him? Like a bell. Like a bell. She's like, I, she's like, where's this coming from? I'm like, it's coming from the Holy Spirit. <laughs> it was right on the money, wasn't it? Crazy. And I was like, it's yours. It's yours by right of inheritance. Who told you you can't hear the Lord? Who told you the Holy Spirit can't, won't talk to you? Who told you that? It's blood-bought, people. Jesus paid with his veins. And he paid for it. And if something, somebody paid that, somebody bought you a Rolex and said, all you got to do is go down there and get it. W would you go get it? Would you, would, you, would you wear it? <laughs> this person paid with his entire fortune for you to have this. And you'd be like, well, where is it? Is it at Mayer's? Is it at Zales? It's got to be at Jared's. It's got to be at Jared's. I got to go to Jared's. 
God promises this to us. He speaks to us. He's sold by his brothers. He's sent into a foreign land with a foreign culture, and he's auctioned as a slave. So he suffers injustice from his family, and he suffers injustice from a society. Slavery is a systemic injustice. It is. I have to say a couple of things here because it's important that we in our generation understand and understand this correctly. People go, well, there was slavery in the Bible, Pastor. There was slavery in the Bible. There was never slavery in the Bible. There was indentured servitude. God forbid slavery. It was not allowed. What you could do is if you, if you wanted to borrow money from someone, you could say, I want to borrow $100,000 and I'll work for you. For he never let them work for the person for more than seven years. They had to be released every seven years. So every seven years they were released. So they could never be an indentured servant. From what they, didn't, they were not allowed to charge interest. So if you came to another Jew or another believer and they, they loaned you $10,000, they weren't allowed to charge you any interest at all. Usury was forbidden. They were not allowed to charge usury at all. But they were allowed to do indentured servitude. In other words, it's a win-win. You want to borrow 10 grand from me so that you can buy that land? Okay, work for me for seven years, and I'll give you the 10 grand. And you, I'll give you the 10 grand, go buy the land, but you're going to work for me for seven years. Or six years, or three years, or whatever the negotiated time was. That was what the Bible allowed. It never allowed slavery, ever. When the Hebrew people conquered the people, they never enslaved them. Ever. God never let them enslave their conquered foes. Ever. But the Romans did, the Greeks did, the Babylonians did, the Assyrians did. They not only conquered, they enslaved, but God's people were not allowed. They were not allowed to keep slaves. They were not allowed to accept slaves. It was never, for, it was never ever, ever allowed. And when the indentured servant was working for the person, they had to be treated with dignity and honor. God says, if you abuse the indentured servant, the indentured servant goes free. So if you, in a fit of rage, go out there and beat the guy to a pulp, because he's not doing what you want, he goes free and the debt is canceled. Right? Right? Someone's like, can I tell that to my boss? Can I go in there and tell him? <laughs> and we have a lot of people commenting on the Bible, they don't, which are, they're woefully ignorant of. You did that, well, slavery's in, slavery's in the Bible. Where? Where? Show me where. Show me where God told his people they could take slaves. They were not allowed. Indentured servitude is entirely different. They did the same thing when they were founding this country. When England was founding this country, you could pay for your passage by, by working as an indentured servant. You could say, I'm going to work for you in the new world. For, they weren't allowed. They were doing more than seven years. They were doing like 10 years. I'm going to work for you in the new world for 10 years, and after 10 years, I'm going to go free. That was how it worked. Even in, indentured servitude is entirely different than slavery. And God's idea of indentured servitude was that the person is treated with dignity and honor the whole time. They're treated humanely. They're treated as part of, they literally were treated as part of the family. A lot of times the indentured servant would serve the master, the wealthy master, and they would actually say, I give myself to you as a bond servant. It's called doulas. That's actually what we're called to be, is doulases, and it means willful slave. They would call them doulases. They would take them into town and say, I willfully give my life in the servitude of this master for eternity, I, for, or in, indefinitely. I'm going to serve him. I've served him. He's paid me the money. The debt's canceled. But now my service to him is willing. And you know what they would do? They would take you to the doorpost of his house, and they would draw an awl through your ear, and they'd put a gauge in your ear. And so they'd walk around with gauges. Remember, anybody know what gauges are? Anybody know? Some of you? They're, you know, the big hoop, the big, like, holes in the guys' ears that they wear now with the big black, you know, like, they'd have a gauge in one ear. And the gauge meant that they were a doulos. They were a willing servant of that master, a willing slave. And you know, when God calls us, you know what the Bible uses the word? It uses the word doulos. We willfully, in humble submission, give ourselves in servitude. Not out of a debt, but out of a willingness. We're called doulases. Our life doesn't belong to us. We've willfully given it to him. We've bound ourselves to him now and eternally. He's auctioned as a slave. He's purchased by Potiphar, highlighted. It's a whole other story. It says, the Lord was with Joseph in the house of Potiphar, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. So I want you to get this straight. Potiphar is an Egyptian captain. He's probably within three to five people of the pharaoh. So he's right there. He has a deep association with Pharaoh, extremely wealthy and extremely powerful man. The Bible says that he didn't even know what he had because he had committed all of his resources to Joseph. Joseph was overseeing his business and said the only thing Potiphar knew was how much bread he had. That's pretty much it. 
How much food's in the fridge? That's pretty much it. He didn't know. Joseph was managing all of his resources. He was very, very wealthy. And yet the Bible says in the midst of all that wealth, it was Joseph, the one that was prosperous. It was Joseph that the Bible deemed successful. The honor and the favor was upon him. So I want you to get this one. Ready? Say this with me. He's in a place he doesn't want to be. And he's working for a boss that he doesn't like. And everybody say, ouch. Yes, you all can feel the pain on that, right? So he's working. A lot of times we have to end up, we find ourselves working in a place we don't want to work and working for a boss that we don't like. This is where he's at. But Joseph chose to honor. He didn't judge Potiphar. He blessed him with excellence. He served him with excellence. In other words, he gave his very best to the place he didn't want to be, and he gave his very best to a boss he didn't want to work for. And what was the result? Promotion. He was promoted over the whole house. It was seen. He was distinguished. In time, he was distinguished. Then along comes the sexy cougar. <laughs> Joseph worked for Potiphar for about four years. So he started working when he was 17. About this time, he's about four years in, so he's in his early 20s, right? He's out of the pubescent stage, and he's into the more manly, comely stage. Walking around the house with his shirt off, you know? Egyptian style, oiled, tanned. She's like, yeah. <laughs> Every day she'd say, lie with me. Lie with me, Joseph. Lie with me. Now, I don't know about you. I just want to, I'd like to talk to the men in the room for a moment. Every, every, that's my best Bill Clinton. Anyway. <laughs> when I was 21 and the wind was blowing, is there a man in the house? When I was, let me just, come on, man. When you were 21 and the wind was blowing, you were ready. You understand what I'm saying? You were ready. It was on. So you got this woman walking through the house, this wealthy woman walking through the house going, lie with me. Lie with me. Come and lie with me, Joseph. I've washed my hair today, Joseph. Doesn't it look amazing? She's doing this all day long. And Joseph didn't want to do it. And the, way he didn't, the reason he didn't want to do it at this point was because he didn't want to sin against God. And the, and the Mishnah, in the, in the, Hebrew, the Hebrew commentary, it says when he said that to her, this is not in the Bible, but it's in the commentary, the Hebrew commentary. It says she disrobed, threw, it over the, threw her clothes over the head of one of the household gods or statues and says, now he sees nothing and stood before him naked. And that's when he ran out. That's, that's the commentary on that. Yeah, try that one on. I don't know about that. He didn't do it. So she lies about him. They throw him in jail. Ready? Say this with me. Thrown in jail for 11 years. 11 years. Say this with me. No court. No trial. No appeal. That's how powerful Potiphar was to jail. He didn't even need to go to Pharaoh. He had the power to execute judgment immediately. And he sends, he sends Joseph to jail. There's no court. There's no hearing, there's no appellate, there's nothing. And you're thrown into an Egyptian jail with no crime over you, no sentence date, you're there to rot. Left to be forgotten. It wasn't like they'd go through the calendar and go, Who, okay, who's this Joseph guy? Okay, he's sentenced for five years. Oh man, we gotta get him out of here. It wasn't like that. He was sentenced indefinitely. Complete and utter systemic injustice. But he prospered in prison. The Bible says that the, the, the warden or the overseer of the prison gave him special privileges. It says Joseph was shown grace in prison. This is an interesting word, right? Or is it right here? It says, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him grace, and he gave him favor in the sight of the prison keeper. Why do you need grace? You need grace for the things in your life that are not necessarily his will. It wasn't God's will for Joseph to be lied about, to be accused of something, and to be thrown into prison. That wasn't his will. You say it was God's will that, that, Pharaoh influ that, that Joseph influenced Pharaoh. That I will agree with. God would, the Lord allowed him to go down to prison, allowed the circumstances. It wasn't because of his brother, but God was using it to angle him, to get him close to Pharaoh so that he could influence Pharaoh. But he didn't need to go to prison in order to influence Pharaoh. He was already in a position to influence Pharaoh. He was in the household of Pharaoh's captain, the captain of his guard, the captain of his army. He was already there. Joseph could have had a dream, and the captain would have went, you got a dream? I got a guy over here. He interprets dreams. They bring him over. He, he didn't need to go to prison. So the Bible says he gave him grace while he was in prison. He gave him spiritual power, moving in love, to deal with a situation that he was not meant to be in. 
When you're in a situation that you're not meant to be in, you need what? Say it with me. Grace. And say this with me. This is important. We got this like lame definition of grace. Say this with me. Grace, grace. is spiritual power spiritual. moving in love. That's what you need. I give you grace. Oh, the grace of God is just sustaining me. Yeah, what is it? It's spiritual power moving in love to endure and to accomplish the, the place that, and the, uh, the task that's set before me. That's what grace is. It's the root of charis. It's, this, it's where we, all of the gifts come out of grace, charismata, and all of the gifts move in power. It's spiritual power moving in love. God gave him spiritual power moving in love to endure a situation and a circumstance that was beyond him. <clears throat> Spiritual power moving in love. Help some, and he's, so two guys have a dream. He, two guys are thrown. Pharaoh has a fit of rage. He gets rid of his butler and he gets rid of his baker, throws him in jail. <clears throat> they have dreams. And Joseph goes, well, wh what was your dream? Tell me your dream. He meets him and, go, and the cupbearer tells him his dream. And he goes, and then the, uh, he goes well, uh, I believe that you're going to be restored back to your position in three days. And the baker goes, oh, that must be good news. So let me tell you my dream. And so the baker tells him his dream. And he goes, uh, your dream means in three days you're going to be hung. And, the, and then they're going to impale your body on a stake. <laughs> I got good news. I got bad news. I mean, I don't know. What do you want? And so the Bible says that three days later was Pharaoh's birthday. And on his birthday, he restores, Joseph, he restores the butler to his position. And he executes the baker. But when he tells this to the cupbearer, he says, when you go before Pharaoh, tell him that I'm here. Tell him that I'm sentenced and I've been here for 11 years and I'm forgotten. Tell them. Tell them. Did he do that? Nope. You ever do favors for people and they forget you? Anybody? You help them and then when you want them to help you back, say, that sounds like my teenager. Yes, exactly. I know exactly <laughs> what you're talking about. You help them. And then you ask them to help you back, and there's like as if you never existed. You don't, you're never, you've never been around. So he stays in jail for another two years. So now he's in jail for 13 years. 13 years, man! <laughs> and Pharaoh summons Joseph. So then Pharaoh starts having nightmares. He has a dream about healthy cows, and those cows in the dream turn into skinny cows and die, and all this stuff. The wheat grows, and then the wheat dies. He's like, what is this dream? Nobody knows what the dream is. And the cupbearer goes... Oh, yeah, there's a guy right downstairs in your dungeon <laughs> that can interpret dreams. Now, I want you to get this from Joseph's perspective. The Pharaoh summons Joseph. They don't tell him why they're summoning him. They're not sitting him down going, hey, come over here, man. Listen, so uh, Pharaoh wants you to come upstairs and interpret a dream for him. Uh, he's had some dreams and some nightmares, and they tell me you're the guy. Is that true? Okay, cool. So you're good with this? You're good with this? They don't, they don't even negotiate. They just show up in the cell and go, get up. Get up. He doesn't know if he's going to be executed. He doesn't know where they're taking him. He doesn't know why they're summoning him. He has no idea what's about to happen. None. They're just taking him. And it says this. Say this with me. Joseph, Joseph. Shaved. shaved. He was a Gillette man, you see. He liked to shave. What he's doing now is he is surrendering who he is. He's surrendering his cultural identity. He's surrendering aspects about who he was. To a Hebrew, he was a Jew, and he was a Hebrew. Only slaves shaved. That's it. Heathens and slaves shaved. A Hebrew would never shave. The Egyptians didn't have hair on their body. They, like, had waxing salons, man. I mean, all the men were beautifully waxed in every way. They didn't like hair. They were like a hairless society. Anybody see the Jewish society? They're not hairless at all, okay? Like the Hasids, they're like, boom, here it is. What do you like? You like it? And so he's shaved. And so what Joseph does is he takes the humble position. For the first time in his life, Joseph humbles himself and says, it's not about me. It's not about my identity. It's not about my ideals. It's not about what I think. And he yields himself to the process that God had put before him. And he comes before Pharaoh. He has to say this with me. He had to, he had to. stand in insecurity and instability in order that his dependency upon the Lord might come to the forefront. God will allow you in circumstances to find yourself in very unstable environments. Anybody been there? 
Can I get a witness? He will allow yourself to be put in positions that, that leave you deeply insecure. And you go, what are you doing to me? He's showing you that his, he's he trying to train you to be dependent and reliant upon him. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds forth from the mouth of God. Our dependency is not in the natural. Our dependency is in the supernatural. That's what he's doing, Christian. And if you'll look to him, again, you hear me tell the victim process. Stop being a victim and go, okay, Lord, I know I'm not a victim here, and I know you're not doing anything to me, but I'm feeling deeply insecure, so I need grace, spiritual power moving in love so that I can endure this. Now we're on track. I need wisdom so that I can make the right decision in this situation. Now we're on track. Now we're tapping the resources and the identity that he's given to us. He shows himself humble and dependent. Pharaoh says, I've had a dream. He tells him the dream. And then Joseph interprets it. And he tells him, you're going to have seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. And the years of famine are going to be great. So you're going to need to store up extra grain during the season of plenty in order to endure the season of famine. And in a moment, he's exalted. In a moment, in a moment, everything changes. This is the God we serve. In a moment, everything can change. In a moment. This guy's in the prison. He's down here. He's just basically forgotten, living with the rats. Wasn't a nice. They didn't have a, a bureau of prisons in Egypt. They didn't care if you died. You could die of dysentery. You could die of disease. You could die of rat poison. They didn't care. They didn't care at all. You were, you were a prisoner. You were just, they, there was no humanity in that process at all. And Pharaoh looks at him and says, the God who spoke to you about this dream is the same God will give you wisdom. I'm paraphrasing. Same God will give you wisdom. Is there anyone found in Egypt that is, that is all as wise as Joseph? And so he's looking at him going, if the God spoke to you, then you're also going to have the wisdom. And Pharaoh sets him over the, over the grain. Joseph had come to the place of intentional, say this with me, intentional Reliance. You have to come to the place of intentionally relying upon the Lord. In other words, you choose to rely upon him. God's, he'll use circumstances sometimes to get you to rely upon him, but he's not looking for you to be pushing the fire alarm all the time. He's trying to get you to a place where you're intentionally relying upon him, to where he's not second, he's first. So when a decision has to be made, we seek the counsel of the Most High. When, when, when something needs to happen or when anything is involved in our life, we have no good ideas. He's the only good idea I have. That's what intentional reliance looks like. Lord, I have this idea. I want to submit it to you. What do you think? Lord, I have this plan. I want to submit it to you. What do you think? And allow him to partner with you and speak to you according to what's going on. That's intentional reliance. That's what it means. You're, because God's, you, people think that you only should be intentionally reliant when you're in crisis. Crisis is just to get your attention. We're to live a lifestyle of intentionally being reliant. I tell you before, my wife gets cr goes crazy with me because she, she's like a now person. And I'm like, I'm going to hear the Lord. I'm going to hear the Lord. Even though I, I go, that's a great idea. That looks like a brilliant idea, but I'm going to hear the Lord. I'm not making a decision. It's like, you take too long. I'm like, oh, that's, I don't care. Not because I'm so brilliant, but because I have learned the deep lesson of being intentionally reliant. I go to him first. I have no good idea. I don't. I don't. And this is really the, the key, one of the keys to Joseph's plan was he was intentionally reliant. It wasn't that he didn't have an idea. He was probably going, okay, Lord, I'm thinking like this. I'm thinking like this. Is this a good why? Is this what you're thinking? Yes, yeah, this is what I'm thinking. And he probably got a download of wisdom. Anybody ever get a download of wisdom? You know what I'm talking about? A lot of times it comes through counsel. Somebody comes to you and they ask you a question, and all of a sudden, woof, you get this download of wisdom. And you're like, wow. Somebody get me a pen. <laughs> You give this person amazing counsel, and you're like, I'm a genius. And then you walk away, and you go, now, what did I say again? What was it that I said? Because it's imparted to you. It's released to you. Intentional reliance. Huge. Say this. If I look to myself for faith, I've already failed. Faith doesn't come from you. Faith comes from God. All faith comes from God. Even the measure of faith is given to you. Faith is not common to humans. We have to look to God for faith. We have to look to him for, we have to look, we, and you, the way that works, how do you see this situation? That's how faith is born, people. Faith isn't born by looking at the circumstances. It looks like the house is burning to the ground. It looks like all is lost. It looks like we're not coming back. That's what the circumstances say. And there's no, anybody, know, anybody think there's faith in that? 
Well, you just got faith in that. No, the where faith is really born is when you go, Lord, how do you see this? How do you see this? What is your eyes on it? And he'll go, we can rebuild. We can restore. Don't focus on what was lost, Kevin. Focus on what was gained. And all of a sudden, faith comes into you because you're seeing it from his world and you're hearing it from his mouth. And you're not letting the circumstance and the situation speak to you. It's coming to you, not of the earth. It's coming to you from heaven. That's where faith comes from. We just try to work ourselves up into faith, and we just got to have enduring faith. Man, go back to the Lord and go, now what did you say about this situation? He said, I said, live and not die. I said, above only and not beneath. Right. I said, success and not failure. I said, you are inconquerable and undefeated. You cannot be defeated. I said to you, don't quit. And then you just keep stirring, that faith keeps stirring in you. And you're not manufacturing it, it's coming to you. Ask him. Come on, what did we say about Elias? What did, I, what did I ask you about your baby? I said, what is the Lord saying to you? And you said, I feel like he's telling me it's all going to be okay. And I'm like, then that's what we bind our faith to. That's where your hope came from. The doctors weren't giving her any hope. You got an hour. That's what they told her. Say your goodbyes. Your baby's not going to make it. Well, I'm like, well, what's Jesus say? He says he's going to be all right. We're going with that. We're not binding our faith to the word of a doctor. We're binding our faith to the word of a king who's never lost once. He's never lost. <laughs> okay, so here I'm going to try to summarize this in less than five minutes. Four minutes I got. I got four minutes. I got four minutes. I got four minutes. Come on. You can do this. I've worked with less. I can do this. So Joseph's now in head of the grain. He's second only to Pharaoh. He's the man. Okay? He is the dude. There's no other dude in the kingdom except Pharaoh. Whatever, whatever Joseph says is law. It's as if Pharaoh speaks. So now Joseph is in charge of everything, and he's in charge of the grain. His brothers come south into Egypt because they were living in the north. They come south because Egypt has grain, and they're going to buy grain. Now watch this. Now tell me this isn't human. Joseph's in the marketplace, and he sees his brothers, and immediately he freaks out, right? And then all of a sudden, you ever do that? Because he's used to being under them. He's used to having his brothers over him, so he sees them. He's immediately afraid. Oh, my gosh, there's my brothers. And then he realizes, hold on a second. I'm the dude. Right? And so he starts, he tells, his, he tells his, um, his people to take those people into, he says, take those people and sequester them. So he takes them into a room, and Joseph walks into the room and starts talking to them. He says, where are you from? They tell him where he's from. His immediate words out of his mouth is that you are liars and you are spies. So what do you think's going through his mind? I'm going to kill all y'all. <laughs> That's what's going through his mind. People that teach this story about Joseph, look at the self-control that Joseph expressed and how he loved his brothers. Do you know why? Because he didn't react in the moment. This was an eight-month experience between him and his brothers. So he was talking to them, and this didn't happen in an hour. He sends his brothers home. They come back. There's this whole exchange that's going on, and it went on over a period of about eight months. And so in that time, Joseph probably had a, had a, had a little bit of time to reflect on this and to think it through. You understand? But in the moment, he wants them dead. He calls them spies right out of the gate. The penalty for being a spy was, was execution. They're, you were going to be executed, and they knew it. And so they start tripping. And he asks them, and he tells them all of these different things. And in the end, he humbles himself. In the end, he shows himself to his brothers. But he's testing them. He's testing them. And then he comes up with a plan. He says, okay, 11, 10 of you are going to stay here. Or no, nine of you, because there was only 10 that went down. Nine of you are going to stay here in prison, and one of you is going to go home. I'm going to bind all of you. Then the negotiating, they say, okay, I'll keep one of you, and then the other nine can go and get the other brother, because he had another brother named Benjamin, and they didn't bring Benjamin with him. That was Joseph's true brother. That was his full-blood brother. The others were half-brothers. And so they bring Benjamin down, and he wants, then, then he decides, I'm going to keep Benjamin, and the rest of you can go back. And Judah pleads with him. This is where Judah offers his life in exchange for Benjamin's. He says, he says keep me and don't keep this boy because my, my father loves him dearly. And if we do not return with him, I feel my father will die. So I'm willing to take his place as your slave in this place. That's the second time Judah did that. He offered himself in exchange for, jo for, for, for Joseph, and he offered himself in exchange with Benjamin. That's what heaven saw over Judah. That's why Judah's chosen to be the line of the kings. God's eyes moved over Judah, not because Judah had any right. Judah was an adulterer. If you read the story, in between, Judah goes back with his father and sleeps with a prostitute. 
in the process of in between this whole Joseph thing, and in, in, in between this whole story of Joseph, uh, Judah sleeping with prostitutes. So jo, jo, Judah wasn't this amazing guy. Again, we shine these people. That God works through dysfunctions. Can I get a witness? <laughs> this is truth. God working through our broken humanity to accomplish his purposes and his glory. He uses circumstances to humble you beyond yourself and to show you it's not about you and to bring forth his purpose in the journey. So everything that's going on, ready? We're going to quote these two verses and then we're going to take communion. Paul, Paul had a lot to deal with this. Paul had a lot of things not go his way. And so when he writes, he's telling us the truth. He said, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working in us a more exceeding weight of glory. In other words, everything that we're going through is producing something for the Lord. God is not authoring your circumstance, Christian, but he is using it. You need to get that. God is not creating this environment. He didn't make his brothers betray him. He didn't make his brothers hate him, but God used it. The things that happen to us are a result of poor choices. Number one, everybody say it with me. Poor choices, right, that are out of alignment with God's purpose. That's number one. Then we say this. The things that happen to me, come on, are poor choices or broken people or broken systems in a broken world. God is not authoring anything. God is using that to bring good into the world. He's using the circumstance. He's not authoring it. He didn't create the circumstance. A lot of the circumstances are by our own hand. We penned that story. We wrote that story. We made that choice. We were with that person in that place doing those things. And we knew we shouldn't have been doing it. And then when something happens, we go, why did that happen to me? Why are you doing that to me, God? It tells us to look not at the things that are, temp that, things that are natural because they're temporal. Not look at the circumstances because they're going to change, but look at the eternal because they don't change. And here's the coup de grace. Here's the key to the whole thing. Say this with me. I know, I, know. I, believe, I believe that God, that God works everything out to my good because he's loved me, because he loves me, and he has called me according to his purpose. Season's going to change, Christian. That's right. <laughs> I have more to say, but I'm out of time. <laughs> We're going to take communion. I was just talking to these pastors in, um, in India, and they were telling me, uh, we don't feel worthy to take communion. And I'm like, well, who told you that? Who told you you're not worthy to take communion? There's only one verse in the Bible that tells us to examine ourselves when we're taking communion. And it's because they were not rightfully discerning the Lord's body. That's why they were sick. They weren't understanding what, what happened to them. They weren't understanding. And so they were very cavalier in the, the way that they approached it. But if you look at the way Jesus gave us communion, it was at a party. And it was at a celebration. And it was given to us with joy. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. They, gave, they had communion together and they went out, of, they went out into the garden singing songs. They were singing Hallel's praise songs. Who told you you're not worthy to take communion? Who told you you're not worthy? You're worthy because he says you're worthy. This is an act of agreement. We're not cavalier about our faith. We don't take sin lightly. God's taught me many times there's no holiness without the Holy Spirit, so good luck. Good luck. Church wants to force a holiness.